The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, getting cold feet after six minutes, Ganaz de Tears' bumpy ride, and hashtag golden ball. Hi, it's Lindsay Hooper here with former Lioness Laura Bassett. Hello, Bass. Good to have you back on. Thanks, Lindsay. Also with us, the Athletic Charlotte Harper. Hello to you, Charlotte. Hello, Lindsay. We're speaking off the back of a weekend that was hit by weather. We had games called off. The game at Kings Meadow between Chelsea and Liverpool, five, six minutes in before that got called off. I was meant to be going to do Brighton Arsenal. That game got postponed as well. Uh, start off by asking if either of you were at any of these matches or meant to be. I was there. I was feeling very smug because Chelsea put out a tweet at 9.30 that there was a pitch inspection. And my train was at 9.45. And I was like, do I get it? Don't I get it? And I jumped on. And then at 10.16, they said, game's on. And I thought, okay, I'm there. Get there at 11 and the whole pitch is covered by a white, almost tent-looking spaceship. (laughs) And the blowers were on and and the heaters. Mm. So those scenes aren't good for the game. We get that. I think it's worth pointing out that the blowers you talk about and the tent that are there to protect the pitch are provided by the FA. They're not provided by the club. And I don't know how many of you know about that, but it feels like this is an issue. And and I've watched lots of media unfold off the back of this postponement in terms of calling for more from the FA, for instance, and from the referees. But actually, isn't this, Bass, more about calling for more from the owners? You know, it's a facilities question, isn't it? These are smaller facilities. It's smaller grounds. The same way that we saw fixtures called off in League One and League Two and some championship matches, it's going to happen in this league because it's not got the mega bucks of the Premier League. And we just have to accept that it's not there yet yeah I I mean I don't think we have to accept anything do we We, we're always going to keep shining a light keep talking about it because we always want more we always want to push for more whether that's audiences eyes on the game but I think now the most disappointing thing we have got eyes on the game we have got fans prepared to spend their money travel a long way and commit their weekend which might only be their their only day off in their working week and things like this are happening that that's the most disappointing thing for me in terms of, you know, it could have been called off at 9.30 and yes, it might have been an inconvenience. Charlotte could have turned around and gone home and had a cup of tea. (laughs) But, you know, all jokes aside, you know, a lot of people might have been able to spend their Sunday going to a different game or spending it how they like. However frustrating it would have been to have a game, another game called off, you know, it would have allowed fans, which are at the core of why, why we play football and why we do. Well, that, that's a great point, Bass, because also you think about that game between Chelsea and Liverpool, in particular at Kings Meadow, and the start time that would have been needed for those Liverpool fans to travel down. And you had to feel for them. Charlotte, I hope you managed to get 
a few vox pops, as it were, with some of the Liverpool fans that had made that journey. I think as well, it highlighted it even more, didn't it? Because Spurs against Leicester was called off the evening before. It was a few hours as well to go before Brighton and Arsenal. So there was a little bit of a, a heads up there as well. But to be six minutes into a match, that one felt unusual. And I'm, I'm expecting that's the one that you'll be uh, writing more about, Charlotte. Yes, piece on the situation and how it was handled is up on the athletic site right now, so you can go and read it. And, you know, there was confusion at 9.30, pitcher inspection. The FA's media guidance is that the pitch wasn't playable, but, you know, there was optimism from the referee that it would be playable. And questions then have to come in, what is a playable surface? You know, the the referee is responsible for the health and safety of the players. That's a, a huge call to make. PGMOL have said, you know, a playable surface is when a, a stud can, you know, penetrate the turf. As time went on, they got the covers off. But, of course, the temperatures are still freezing. So it's the referee's decision uh, whether the game goes ahead or not. Matt Beard was not happy with the conditions of the pitch. The captain spoke to the referee as well, Neil Hare. Uh, Liverpool had to move their warm-up area from the far side of the dugouts. If you've been to Kings Meadow, their far side is uh, faces southeast as it doesn't get morning sunshine, it's in shade. And yet the game still went ahead. And then we saw from the clips on TV of the, the slipping and the sliding. Emma Hayes said it was like an ice rink. Matt Beard said... They were like Bambi on ice. So it was just fortunate that no one was injured. Yeah. We talked well, about, Erin Cuthbert you know, went down, didn't she? And I think everybody thought, wow, that could have actually been a, a quite a serious injury in a different circumstance. So it, it was lucky, really, that no one got hurt. It was lucky. And, and I also do think it is a, a, a league-wide responsibility. You know, the, the FA, which governs the league, is... Uh, responsible for setting those standards. For example, they wrote into uh, the contract that men's stadiums should host a minimum of three WSL games, and that's been done, so that the league can hold clubs to account. The other questions whether you know the, the BBC put pressure on the game to be played. The BBC said they had no, uh, they weren't involved in the decision at all. There was no pressure. You've also got to think about scheduling, especially with uh, Chelsea and the Champions League. So the, the FA would make every effort for a game to be played. But the player safety had to be number one priority. And luckily, the decision was made and the right decision was made, but it was at the wrong time. And the way in which the process happened and it was handled, you know, there, there has to be improvements. And I think if the postponement had been announced earlier... Uh, we wouldn't actually be having this conversation and it's good we're having this conversation to demand mm -hmm. better for the players, to demand better for facilities because every year this happens that there are frozen pitches. You know, we're a professional league, one of the most competitive in the world, attracting the best players in the world with a sponsorship deal and a broadcast deal and this showed the frailties and the gaps in, in the Women's Super League. Hope Powell on the BBC coverage called it embarrassing, Bass. Um, and, and then there were also questions about why it wasn't just a delayed kickoff and why it was cancelled altogether, because we saw that with Everton against West Ham, for instance. It was just delayed. Where, where were you? Where, where were you sat as you were seeing this unfold? 
Yeah, so I was actually at home waiting to be entertained an afternoon of women's football before leaving for the women's football show. So I was actually, you know, as a pure viewer. And it was, it was, you know, I said straight away to my mom, I was like, players are slipping out. They're all over the place here. Like they're slipping, they can't stand up. And that was after a first minute. Going back to Charlotte's point, you know, what makes a pitch playable, you know, that that the pitch will take a stud. It's not about that, is it? It's about cutting, twisting, turning, you know, it, it's multi-directional. So I'm not even I'm not even sure if, if you would have left it an hour, it, the pitch would have been playable. But yeah, certainly as a spectator, as a viewer in my house, it was, and I agree with Hope, it was embarrassing. It was, yeah, for six minutes of football, for everyone to be confused that it could have been, and I think Charlotte, you know, what exactly what Charlotte's just said, she summed it up perfectly um, in her previous comments. But yeah, certainly as a fan at home, if I was a new audience tuning in, you, it's just, yeah, it was farcical. The the big concern is whether it's going to put fans off travelling in future. I mean, this is a winter league. It used to, once upon a time, Bass, you'll remember, I remember. Yeah, bring back the summer <laughs> It used to be a summer league. <laughs> we didn't have to worry about frozen pitches, but we do now. And that is one thing that could put fans off, especially if you've got those early kickoff times or the late kickoff times when the temperatures dip in the winter. It could put people off travelling. We don't want that. We want to see the numbers through the gates. So, yeah, I think this is going to rumble on and on. What you do get, though, from these these events is you do get some lovely stories off the back of it as well. I wanted to highlight Lotta Wuben Moy, Arsenal defender, who put money behind the bar for the Arsenal fans that had travelled to Crawley. And Emma Hayes as well said she was going to buy everyone a hot dog at the next game. So everyone's going to be turning out in their droves to get a free hot dog. That's my vision anyway, Charlotte. <laughs> Yeah, the the stories of the Liverpool fans getting up at 3.15 to catch the club coach at 5am to arrive 15 minutes before kickoff, and then to get try and get back on the bus, but they couldn't because the driver had to have their enforced break. And it wasn't long enough between uh, the handover for them to get back on their way. And it is a real, real shame. And, and that is the fear that you're going to deter people from coming and it just had a tin pot feel to it mm. well hopefully lessons have been learned especially because Liverpool play Chelsea in the FA Cup next weekend and we want to see fans traveling for that one on social media you'll have seen that Emma Hayes there's clips of her talking about a need for undersoil heating going round Viv Miedemar has also weighed in on that Charlotte I'm going to come back to you because I think given that you've read all the small print <laughs> I'm going to come back and say, is that feasible? Is is it something that's achievable in the near future? I don't know, Lindsay. <laughs> uh, it's it's what I'm looking into, like the, the infrastructure of women's football. We've seen the commercial demand. We've seen the broadcast demand from the Euros, but it showed the WSL's frailties. Like how many WSL grounds have undersoil heating? So Leicester play at the King Power Stadium. Obviously, when you play at the men's stadiums, it's possible. But is that financially viable? How much would it cost? Considering that, you know, men's players are earning, even from academy level up, exorbitant amounts compared to the women's game. Is it that you put a, a pot aside in order to actually invest in the, in the women's game uh, and commit to it? What is the FA also doing to support clubs? Kelly Simmons came out um, in 2021 after the broadcast deal was saying that they would uh, support the WSL sides when conditions are frozen. 
I don't know if the WSL has to be played on grass. What about artificial turf? But, you know, again... No, 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 exactly. no, no, no there. <laughs> Concerns are through the roof with artificial turf. It's awful for player protection and their welfare yes. as well. I remember um, in Canada seeing Karen Bardsley get a piece of, you know, those, those little black balls in the artificial turf. I don't know what on earth they are, but she got one in her eye. And I just thought, no, this can never happen again. So I have to say, I'm with Bass on that. Let's forget the artificial <laughs> turf. Let's put that in the bin. Artificial turf is in the bin. So yeah. what are your club's long-term sustainable solution for this? Because it will keep cropping up. This is a conversation I'm sure we're going to revisit. But at least, like you both said, we have managed to to highlight some of the issues that we have playing in this Winter League in stadia that, that don't have the facilities yet to cope with frozen conditions, let's face it. So hopefully we'll get some guidance on that in the forthcoming weeks. If you are wanting a lot of notice for rearranged fixtures, we can't give you much more than what Tom Gary did in The Telegraph speaking about the final day of the season and how that may be moving to avoid a clash with the Premier League's final day. When these came out, Bass, I must admit, I was thinking this isn't going to stay like this. They're not going to have the final day of WSL on the same day as the final day of the Premier League because it doesn't make much sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, fans have a have an interest in men's and women's football. It's a bit like the FA Cup finals where, you know, there should be a separate event. So all eyes should be on the game, you know, the women's games, the men's games. So I, I'm all up for being on different days. Very exciting. And what, what a great weekend to end, to end both seasons on. Exactly. It's not been made official yet, but we would urge anyone interested to keep an eye over the, the next few weeks as to confirmation of that day moving. I think the sense is it's going to happen. Some teams this weekend were lucky enough to play some football. We will begin in Manchester, a game that I was at, where Man City hosted Aston Villa. Sure. Lovely ball. Castellanos. Super goal from City. Half an hour mark as to Villa go looking for the immediate reply, and they might get it from Hansen. It's in! Villa got back into this game to earn a deserved point at the Academy Stadium. It marks Carla Ward's contract extension week as well, although we're now into a new week. It was last week, old news. City's Dana Castellanos opened the scoring, but just three minutes later, Kirsty Hansen managed to equalise. She was falling backwards at the time, got a deflection, but they all count 1 1. And I felt like the the talking point here, given the history between these teams, Charlotte, is the improvement that is noticeable by Aston Villa. There is that contract extension for Carla, but if you look at the incomings that she's brought in in recent windows, we've seen Rachel Daly, Kenza Darley, and now we've got Lucy Staniforth, Jordan Nobbs. It really feels like they're building something. And if you go back to previous results at the Academy Stadium, 7-0, 5-0, 1-1, you think, wow, this is progress. Huge progress. At the start of the season, there were concerns about Villa, especially how they would climb uh, from the bottom of the table. But to, you know, take four points of Manchester City is a, a massive, massive result. And they're consistent as well. So, yeah, watch this space for Villa. 
And that's four points this season overall, because if you go to the reverse fixture, when Villa were, were at home, they beat City 4-3, didn't they, at the start of the season? And that was a thriller. Uh, Flo Lloyd-Hughes in The Athletic has said that Manchester City's defensive issues are going to be the problem when it comes to a title push. She thinks they could be out of the top three. Going to do a straw poll. Do we agree with Flo? Bass, do you agree? Are they out of the top three? Well, I, come on, I think we should learn from last season that we should never write <laughs> Man City off. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm all for these predictions and people that want to put their neck on the line for these bold predictions. I'm not one for, because having been involved, I think, you know, anything can happen. I just You like a splinter up your bum, let's yeah, face yeah, it. No, I yeah. do, but, but, I do, but also, I don't think you can write them off. I think, you know, no, they, no. The, the quality of players that they do have, they can go on fabulous runs. And if they beat, you know, they've still got games against... Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United, if they win those games, everything turns on its head. So that that it does only take that. I would say I was, you know, I thought Manchester City started the game well. I think they still create chances. I think if they had have been more ruthless um, in that game, which if you look back on their last few weeks, they're, they're only scoring one goal, aren't they? Which well, I don't think they're as productive or as effective as they have been before Christmas in the wide areas from Lauren Hemp, Chloe Kelly um, and her fullbacks as well. And on Flo Lloyd, who she, you know, it's a great, it's a great point about their defensive record and the lack of clean sheets. But I think if you look at their back four, it's a little bit rotational as well. Alana yeah. Kennedy's come back in for the last couple of games, whereas Leila Alexandri has been playing centre back. I think at halftime, Esme Morgan went off with an injury, and Kasparai came on. So, and I think that does. You look at the other top teams, and they just they have that solidity. The same back four or five. There is something about that keeping clean sheets. It's the connections that you make and the reliability and stability of the foundation that you can build on that. You can spin a stat as well. You, know, you are right when you say <laughs> about, about the clean sheets, four home league games in a row without one. But you also look at the home record going into this match and they still remain unbeaten, but they'd won something like 12 at home in a row. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you can spin it either way. It wasn't an on-the-pitch performance that impressed me most in the last seven days. It was something that was done away from the pitch. It was this story that Charlotte's all over about Alex Greenwood commissioning a data report. And then when she had new contract talks, she produced all the findings of this data. I thought this was genius. Bass, I'm, I'm sure that you probably now, if you had your time again, you think, right, I'd, I'd employ that company for any contract talks. Yeah, but I'd be worried, Lindsay, that it'd do the opposite. Like, oh, I'm not very good at all and that you should actually pay me less. I'm awful. I've, I've been awful these last three seasons. Yeah, so it'd be the reverse for me, I'm afraid. Oh, well, Alex Greenwood must have been pretty confident with what the findings were going to be. This is great. So what Charlotte can do, because she wrote about this, you can tell us, what the data was, how it was used and the outcome of it as well, please, Charlotte. So Alex Greenwood uh, used performance data, so that's her performance on the field, and market data, so off the field, to demonstrate the value that she brings to Manchester City, but also considering like the overall growth of women's football. So she presented this to Manchester City around about a year ago. So we're talking February, March 2022. And Analytics FC is an objective. So it's a third party. And and that helps because you're saying in a lot of players' situations, it wouldn't be such a good set of results. But, you know, Greenwood came out very, very well in this. So, for example, 
her goal difference added. Now, I, I know these metrics get banded around. Uh, so goal difference added is if you evaluate every action in a game and you calculate the total contribution of a player per game towards the goal difference of their team. So whether they're having a positive or negative impact of each individual action. And Greenwood was the best among WSL centre-backs and England centre-backs in terms of the goal difference added. So her biggest strengths that came up were her build-up play, her progressive passing, line-breaking passes and, and ability to carry the ball upfield. Now, City may know all of this and it, it's not necessarily a deal-breaker in the contract negotiations. It's just the fact that Alex Greenwood, who enjoys analyzing data, she likes looking at her performance metrics, was proactive enough to say, hey, you know, this is the value I'm bringing to the team. This is what I think I'm worth. And another thing that Analytics FC did very well is just to compare relatively to the men's game. Now, obviously, there are caveats because it's a, a different game. But they compared her contribution to Virgil van Dijk. So what does Virgil van Dijk add for Liverpool and what does Greenwood add for Manchester City? And Greenwood's contribution in terms of goal difference would be better than van Dijk by plus two of a goal, which is a significant kind of distinction between two elite level international players of course there are caveats you know you might say well you can have a bigger impact in the WSL because there are more opportunities to dominate against weaker opposition but the fact that they added the comparison allowed to say okay well Van Dyke is valued as such at Liverpool and Mo Salah is valued as such at Liverpool so a difference between a centre-back and a forward. Now, let's look at Manchester City. Alex Greenwood is valued as such, and your top forward, whether that was Ellen White there or Bunny Shaw or whoever, is valued at this. So you look at Greenwood, what she's bringing to Manchester City, how much it would cost to replace her in terms of transfer fee or salary or bonuses. And if City's mantra is same city, same passion, then you should be valuing your player accordingly. So, it was very intuitive from Greenwood, very smart, and, and it was savvy. Inspired. I honestly think it's the genius move of the last seven days. And it got the outcome she wanted, didn't it? What was the result? Yep, she got her new contract three years. This was very reminiscent of what Kevin De Bruyne did. Uh, I do think it is going to hopefully encourage others to have their own future in their hands as well. Yes, by all means, work with agencies and work with data companies, but but also have the wherewithal to be able to go into a meeting and, and know your worth. Do you think that many more players will follow this now, Bass? I hope so. I hope it's a shining example, really. It's really innovative. I think from, you know, back in my playing days, I think we were especially really start when we with the national team when we were really encouraged to have a growth mindset and really improve our culture and how we viewed and how take ownership for our games and our, to be interested in statistics and how we were playing and our involvement to the team so I think this just lends it to a different self about knowing your worth what you can give to a team but it's, it's always great it's in context but I think you know, it's, it's really frustrating sometimes for me who was maybe excelled in some soft skills like communication. You can't really, you know, have that in a statistic. So how would you put a worth on that? So there are other things that, 
you know, I love statistics, but there's always con- statistics without context is always irrelevant, I find. Um, mm. But no, it's certainly for players. Look, I'd encourage any young player, any player of any age to just know who you are, know what you give and, and yeah, take an interest into the, your statistics. Now, whether that lends to a new contract extension, it, you know, so be it. But really, you should be really kind of intrigued and eager to, to know how you play and what you give. That message, especially for younger players, if Alex Greenwood has done this, you can try and do something similar too. Uh, Well, the red half of Manchester survived a scare to move top of the table. We've got to talk about this, you know, leading the way at this point in the season, Mark Skinner's Manchester United. Rachel Williams was the player that got the only goal against Reading with three minutes to go. She rounded several defenders. It's something you've seen many times before, Bass, with Rachel, before putting it into the roof of the net. That was after Jackie Burns saved a Manchester United penalty I mean the wins whether it be a slender win or whether it be 4-0 5-0 they are all three points and I think when we've spoken about Chelsea in the past Charlotte we've often talked about champions managing to win ugly and that that has to apply I feel like sometimes there is a bit of bias here because Manchester United are fairly new they've not been in a title race before Suddenly, we're talking about the fact that you know there was only three minutes to go, and and they survived a scare. I even said it in the in the lead up here, but actually, we wouldn't talk like that, would we? If it was Chelsea, it'd be like they found a way to get over the line. It's a very good point. Chelsea have that reputation for a reason. The the number of trophies that they've won, but I, I you do make a valid point. It does leave Manchester United in a very good, strong position for for certainly mixing it up when it comes to Europe. Finally, we'll move on to Everton against West Ham. Everton 3-0 victors in this one. A first WSL goal for Aggie Beaver-Jones. And it was a brilliant finish. Really, really good from outside the box. Finished up in the top corner. After that, Everton are now fifth in the table. Slowly been going about their business. And West Ham seventh. And again, a team who seemed to have been revived under Paul Koncheski. Yeah, I think Everton, I think before Christmas, they, they had a clear identity under Brian Sorensen. I think we maybe questioned them in the final third. Were they being ruthless? Could they convert into real good goal-scoring opportunities and ultimately goals? And they you know, were sometimes doing it, but were really inconsistent. But I think after this, after the Christmas break, you know, managing to score three goals last week against Reading, three goals against West Ham, you know, is no mean feat. But I think also, you know, things are going their way. Nicole Sorensen, I think, deserves a huge shout out. She's back now from an ACL injury. I think three games, three assists. So having those players come back with the attacking talent is really impressive. And and I think in that game, I think West Ham were unlucky in some situations. Arguably, they could have had a penalty. Asayi, I think, had a um, a chance that actually crossed the line. So, had there been goal line technology or and, and you know the the officials seen that they could have been back in the game at different points. But certainly, yeah, they're they're two teams with interesting managers, different styles, but they're certainly getting a hold of their squad and their players and, and delivering good things. What excites me about this is that we have a whole new battle emerging. So whilst we're talking about that competition to get European football and finishing in the top three, you look at the spots between fourth and sixth or maybe even seventh, and that is getting really exciting as well. So um, it's a season that I feel is going to deliver in that department. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast with Lindsay Hooper. Gol, 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 gol,
Over in Spain, Barcelona won the Supercopa Femenina, the Super Cup on Sunday. That's where the top two in the cup competition play the top teams in the league. The Athletics' Laia Surveo is here with us, joining us from Barcelona to talk about it. And Barcelona Laia won the final against Sociedad 3-0. How did you see the final? Was it Was it a good game? Was it entertaining? Yeah, it was like uh, the kind of game that uh, Barca used to play like in La Liga. I mean, uh, Barca remained invitable in La Liga. Uh, there's still a huge gap between them and the rest of the teams there. So with this in mind, I think Natalia Arroyo, which is a Real Sociedad uh, coach, is one of the few who have caused Barca trouble, problems uh, this season. They have had a good project for a few years, even qualifying for the the team for the Champions League in, in a historic uh, fashion. A year and a half ago, they were able uh, to overcome the loss of Naikari Garcia, uh, their biggest attacking weapon, with Amayor Sarriegui in, to, in top form. So, yeah, it's a good project. And I think it's the only team that could uh, get uh, Barca in trouble, in problems, in troubles. So, yeah, I think it, they were good, but I think it's, there's, there's still a gap between the, the two teams. From a journalist's point of view at the Super Cup, I know how it usually goes, Laia. You know, you, you're doing your, you're filing your full-time report. You're waiting around, certainly at something like the Super Cup for the trophy lift and then the medal presentation. But did you have an early out here? Because there wasn't a medal presentation for Winners Barcelona, was there? Yeah, they just uh, have to took the medals uh, by his head and just... I think it's uh, quite frustrating just to see that in 2023, uh, just... One week later, that than the men's just were just playing in, in Arabia in just a glamorous uh, ceremony in the final. So I think it's we have a lot to work on. Uh, just la Federación uh, told um, they just were so criticized like last night because the a video was just uh, recorded and just was just filed in the in the media and. They were just saying, okay, but it's uh, every every year with the with the same. But to me, it's not an excuse because if every year you do it in a in a wrong way, you have just to to change that. Uh, and Rubiales and and Tebas were there just seeing the match. So I don't know. I think I think it's like they they keep saying that they do care about women and they do care about uh, women's football. But with things like that, you just can can tell that maybe it's not that 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 true actually and you've just got to keep shining a light on it. I think we've had similar conversations here with frozen pitches as well, which is a topic over here this week. Um, you just got to keep highlighting them. Let's come back to El Clasico because last week in the semi-final, Barcelona beat Real Madrid. We spoke about rivalries and the way that Barcelona are out in front. It was a 3-1 win in extra time uh, with a red card as well for Barcelona's Paredes, who who you would expect to um, to have kept her nerve a little bit better in that game to keep her at 11, but it didn't really matter. It doesn't sound like it was a close game. I, I keep thinking that Real Madrid are the team to pose the biggest threat but have I got that wrong from this from this side uh no I think they like Real Madrid is is the team that uh, needs to to be the team that be, that could beat Barcelona but I think they are just far away from from doing it because I think Florentino actually uh, don't believe as much as he should in in women's team I mean Real Madrid was born uh, like three years ago so it's quite a new a new team and uh, you you can see that it's a new team, like just seeing the the just watching the the games. 
I think that maybe this the this was the closest uh, occasion uh, they had to win Barcelona, but it had to be with just uh, ten Barcelona players on the pitch. So maybe they are just far away from from being able to actually beat Barcelona. They need to just invest a, a little more because they don't have like the the best players wanting to come to Real Madrid for the project. They want to go there just because uh, it's called Real Madrid. Uh, but mm. I think the best European players want to go to Barca because they have a project. So I think that's the difference. If you do manage over the next few years to get that rivalry and, and when it comes to results on the pitch as well, it'd be much, much closer. It's going to be good for the game, isn't it? And, and we're talking about rivalry this week. I know Charlotte and Laura are listening into this right now. I wanted to pick up on an article that you wrote, actually, Laia, about rivalry in El Clasico and whether it is real in the women's game because there was an incident. Real Madrid, as you've said, fairly new club, but Bon Matty refused to shake hands with Madrid keeper Misa in the first Clasico of this season. So it seems like there's something bubbling away underneath there and, and you explore it in an article for The Athletic. Do you feel like it's, it's a real thing that's starting to develop? Yeah, I think that uh, obviously there, there is an explanation for that, of, of course. And it's the Federación conflict, uh, like the conflict they had with the national team, because as you may know, uh, last summer, Spain's performance in the, in the Euros was uh, a disappointment for, for everyone. And after that, Irene Paredes, Alexia Putellas, Jennifer Hermoso, uh, Patrick Guijarro, they just made public that they wanted uh, something in the national team to be changed because they were not winning anything, like any just official match uh, with the national team, like in a quarterfinals or, or or so on. So they just made public that maybe like the trainments weren't as good as they should be. I would say that maybe uh, some players felt that they were was wasting his, their time just going in the national team because in, in Barcelona they had much more... Uh, quality on the on the treatment so I think they have like just uh, they are mad at, at la federación just for not taking them seriously and they just wanted to to say that and of course uh, with uh, Jorge Vilda uh, leading like the the federación there's uh, a lot of uh, more issues with with him because they felt that he's um, controlling and they treat, he treated them like uh, children. Like, mm. for example, when they are like the, in the hotel the night before the, the match, they want to, the, the players to keep their, their like the, the door of the rooms open till midnight. And it's quite weird just, so they were like just mad at all of the situations that they, are, they were going through and they just made it public. And they just say that uh, they didn't want to come back to national team if the situation uh, wouldn't change. So uh, something that uh, that has not happened. So that affects Barca Madrid because uh, a lot of Barca players signed the letter that they sent to the Federación telling that that they wouldn't come back if nothing changed. So Real Madrid was any of the players of Real Madrid uh, signed that letter and they are mad to them because they felt that maybe they are just looked for for themselves because Real Madrid just put pressure on the on the players to not sign the, the letter so that's why the the rivalry against Barça and Madrid yeah i think it's quite weird because uh, before that it wasn't that 
usual to see a big rivalry between two teams, even like Barca and Atletico were big rivals uh, the last decade. Uh, you could see like one player signing from one team to another, and then like like the the supporters were mad at her because it's like different rivalry that maybe you can think of if you see like the masculine teams. So yeah, I think it's it's quite good for for the for La Liga and for like being more attractive to to the supporters to have that rivalry, even if it's a, a little bitter, I, I would say. Exactly. I mean, that from the support, you get the impression that everyone wants to see more rivalries in the women's game. So you've certainly got the starts of something here. And I urge people, if they've not read it yet, to read your article on The Athletic this week about the Real Madrid-Barcelona new rivalry. It's a really good piece. Laya, we'll let you go, but you've opened up a discussion point for us because there's so much that myself, Charlotte and Laura want to get into about rivalries over here. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, that's exactly what we're going to pick up on then with Charlotte and Laura. We'll start with you, Laura, and rivalries over here. In a week where Mana Iwabuchi's loan move was allowed from Arsenal to Spurs, something that I don't think we'd see in the men's game, where do you think we are at with rivalries in this country? Yeah, really interesting, isn't it? I think rivalry means different to different people and different clubs. I think when you sign for a new club, you maybe automatically inherit rivalries depending on winners, championships or player managers that have left you know there's different types of narratives isn't there along with rivalries Um, and then also you have your personal players that you dislike and you don't like playing against maybe they've got the better of you because you don't like their attitude or what they've said to you on the pitch so there's all these kind of micro maybe rivalries that maybe aren't out there in the public but certainly I think women's football do have different rivalries maybe to men's football but then I also think we maybe inherit a lot from the men's game as well so I think there's a bit of a balance and maybe room to grow but I think as a fan now as a as a you know someone that goes to game I think you know having that extra edge I think brings entertainment which is what fans pay for isn't it they want the edge they want the the storyline the the jeopardy I think it's brilliant to have all that. Yeah. It's a really good point you make as well as to where these rivalries originally come from. I think everybody accepts the geographical ones. So the North London rivalry, as I gave in that example with the lone move of Iribuchi, nobody really expects between two North London clubs. But let's face it, there are some, and I've worked in the men's game for a long, long time, and there are some rivalries in the men's game, like the Crystal Palace and Brighton one, for instance, that, that stems back to a manager from years and years and years ago or... It only needs one thing to happen in a match and sometimes you can have a, a big rivalry that comes off the back of it. So we've got to expect, Charlotte, haven't we, along the way that there will be some different ones. I, I think off the top of my head already, the fact that Emma Hayes always speaks to me about Manchester City and Chelsea being a huge rivalry because of them contesting over recent years and the amount of cup finals they've been in together. We, we've got to get used to that, haven't we? Exactly. And I think the Chelsea and Man City rivalry is a good example of that. But it's also worth considering we're having a new audience. So, for example, 40,000 plus at the Emirates, a lot of those are looking to be affiliated with a new team. You know, they've seen the Euros, they want to go to a football club and support them. And they think, okay, I'll go to Arsenal. It's being played at the men's stadium, have the Emirates. But they're not necessarily loyal fans because they're new fans. And because they're not necessarily as loyal, 
then you don't have that edge yet. And there's not that tribalism, which is kind of fueled by alcohol or drugs or in the men's game. So we've got kind of two extremes there. I think when Arsenal played Man United at the Emirates, there was a there was a much bigger atmosphere than when Arsenal played Chelsea, mostly thanks to the away fans uh, from United. So it, it will grow in the women's game. I think we're at an interesting point of kind of tiltering on the edge of where a women's game is going to go. We are always kind of wanting to say we're going to learn from the men's game. It's all like very nice with families and being open with children and, and a welcoming environment. But you also want that kind of a bit of bite. And we can't assume either, Bass, that, that anyone who supports, for instance, Manchester United men are automatically going to support <laughs> Manchester United women. Oh, no, we can't, can are we? You, because no, I, no, but are you saying that personally? Because obviously I spent most of my career at Birmingham and I'm a Villa fan. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were having a dig at me then. <laughs> I wish I'd been that intelligent, Bass, to be able to have, have thought of that so quickly. Although now you've brought it to life. Yeah. Um, but I, I was more thinking about conversations that I've had recently with women's football fans who have a different men's team. I think there are quite a bulk of Arsenal women fans that don't necessarily support Arsenal men. I'm sure there are, there are loads that do, but I think that there's things like that that we have to think about. Yeah, I just want to make the point, Lindsay, as well, from a player's point of view, sometimes in these loan moves, you know, we spoke about the Iwabuchi going from Arsenal to Tottenham. Sometimes in the women's, as a player, there's not that many options. You know, you, mm. in the men's game, you could have 20 plus clubs in this country and, you know, moves abroad but in England you maybe don't have that luxury and also maybe there's not the million pound deals that allow you to just move house move your life to a different part of the country so you know it is a little bit different in the women's game where you have to it's it's what's best for you personally as well as for your football career we could go on and on about these <laughs> rivalries, the background, where it's going to end up, whether we'll see more of these loan moves between clubs but we'll leave that one there for now we'll put a pin in it This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. In other news this week, Juventus midfielder Sarah Bjork-Gunazdatir won a landmark maternity pay case against her former club, Lyon. If you miss this news, I mean, it is landmark in terms uh, of maternity lawsuits going forward. The French club hadn't paid her in full between the time she stopped playing and when her maternity leave officially started. So she was owed around €80,000. And Charlotte, you can tell us now a bit more about this and the impact it could have going forwards. FIFPRO successfully represented Bjork. The key issue here is the difference between French laws and the uh, new regulations that FIFA introduced. And that seems to be the sticking point is that Sarah Bjork stopped playing for Leon in around uh, March, April 2021, but her maternity leave officially started in September 2021. Her child was then born in November and she wasn't paid the full salary between that time. Now, FIFA regulations state that uh, you can have a minimum of, of 14 weeks maternity leave. Bjork took her maternity leave in Iceland and the case from FIFPRO, you know, shows that she won the case. Leon weren't happy with that in the, you know, the French media. They pointed to their current player, Amel Madri, who has just given birth and has returned to playing and said, you know, speak to her. There's a 
different side to the story, but these are two different women. You you can't compare one maternity to the other. So really important for mothers uh, across the game and to show that Fief Pro will have your back and there has to be further infrastructure from the clubs to support uh, mothers and players. Bass, you're a mother as well. Is there anything that you feel isn't being talked about? Because in the lead up to this happening, um, we were talking about Emma McCandy and her maternity leave whilst at Reading. Reading responded to that. Where where do we go next? Is there any more guidance that's needed? Because it just feels like it's early stages of this happening in the women's game where women are, are having breaks to have babies and then come back to the sport. I think you would probably say the majority of cases in your day were people leaving, having families until after their career had ended. Yeah, I think you're right, Lindsay. I think um, my generation, it was through fear of knowing that you'd not got the right support, whether that's financially or actually the support to get back to playing. Um, so it's the fear of not having the infrastructure around you. So it was maybe easier to try and leave it till after your playing days. But, you know, it's brilliant that players have the support from FIFA Pro and PFA and, and, and know that, know that they have that support. But also I would encourage clubs now, you know, whether that's general managers or heads of women's football at each and every English club, you know, be proactive. Don't wait until you have your first player that that falls pregnant to then oh what how are we going to support this player what is the infrastructure what is the policies and procedures in terms of day-to-day you know do it now while you haven't got yeah it might take extra hours and research but it's worth it and you have to do it you you owe that to the players it's a you know something you should provide and I I hope now that because I feel that again it's another we were speaking about infrastructure at the start weren't we with uh, frozen pitches and the infrastructure around that now we're still talking about another nuance that isn't as developed in women's football but there are examples now that there is been a light being shed on it so we should take the time and effort to put those things in place because it's not only about when you're being pregnant is it we have Brynja's dot here at West Ham you know and the support yeah. she gets and I think Charlotte made a really interesting point it is different for every single mother you know, one mother at a club who's playing might might want a nanny to come into training. One a different mother at a different club might be fine with care being given from personal family members at home and might not want to mix the two. It looks different, but you can be prepared to a certain level at a club's. You know, general managers and heads of women's football can be having those conversations now. This could have a huge bearing as well on where players decide to go because we speak about facilities and, and I know in the women's game, clearly the wages and the structure there is something that that still needs working on. But ultimately, everyone I've ever spoken to, when people are looking at moves, often it's been said to me about the tr- training facilities and the rehab ability. So if they get an injury, because we know that they're quite common as well in the women's game, what support are you going to get? And this falls into the support category. It could have a huge bearing on where younger players, when they're in their prime and they're thinking of going and committing to a club for a long time, it could have a sway on, on where they choose to go in terms of the support that they're offered. It's so true, the saying, you know, happy, happy baby, happy mother. And if you've got a happy mother, you've got a happy player and a happy person that's going to give 100% for your club. We are all about spreading the happiness here on the Athletic Women's (laughs) Football Podcast. 
Coming up this week, it is the Conti Cup quarterfinals midweek. At the weekend, it's the FA Cup fourth round where the WSL teams enter into the competition for the first time. Earlier on, I caught up with the competition's top scorer so far, Sammy Rowland, from fourth tier side Hashtag United. She's leading the charge for the Golden Ball Award in partnership with Mitre. Sammy, welcome along to the Athletic Women's Football Show. Hashtag United are a team that I've seen so much about. For anyone who isn't aware, can you just fill us in on the club and how it came to fruition? So it was initially founded by Spencer. He founded like the men's side. And then I believe he put like a tweet out like a couple of years ago and said any women's teams in Essex want to sort of combine and you know, come under the hashtag name. And I believe it was AFC Basildon said we're interested. And then from that, they basically renamed us hashtag United. So now Spencer has a men's side and a women's side. So yeah, we've been about now for about, I believe this is their third season. I only joined beginning of this season, but yeah, third season now. Spencer has always been going places. I was lucky enough to do a YouTube show with him. So we're talking about YouTuber Spencer Owen here. And for someone who's so young with so much vision for where football was potentially going to go in the future and, and different levels of income, it must be so refreshing that someone's approaching a football club in a really unique way. Yeah, obviously the the exposure we get, like all of our games are recorded. We get a chance to just watch it all back and then fans from all over the world actually get to watch us, which is which is quite a mad thought. But um, yeah, I feel like he's creating something special. Have you had some crazy messages? Yeah, we have like the super fans. Um, <laughs> shout out to Yusuf. I'll give him a little shout out here. He's always messaging me. He's always oh. me goal predictions. But um, yeah, honestly, just a mad following. It's, it's a bit crazy, to be honest. But this isn't just novelty, Sammy. I think that's the most important thing to say. People think hashtag United and all the social following and YouTube following that you get. But this isn't novelty. This is on the pitch producing when it when it comes to football as well. You at the moment are leading the way for the Golden Ball Award in partnership with Mitre. So uh, you scored 11 goals in the FA Cup this season. Are you one of those that is a real traditionalist when it comes to the FA Cup? It means a lot. It, it does mean a lot. Like we're we're sort of talking about the big game this weekend, and um, like anything can happen. It's like the FA Cup magic. So yeah, we're just we're just going into it with an open mind and just just got to give it all we can, really. Just amongst these uh, these goals that you've got, you also got a hat trick in amongst them. What was your favourite one, and why? See, that was in the Antonians game. I think probably. I mean, the opening goal was nice because it was just that. A bit of relief like I'm always quite nervous until the first goal goes in no matter if it's like for us or against us I think that just sort of eases the pressure so to get the first which was nice and then probably the second was my favorite goal it was a great run from Malika who probably could have shot herself but um yeah she played it into me and I've yeah just slotted it away nicely so that was probably my my favorite goal of the FA Cup so far. Clearly you're enjoying a really good run in the FA Cup. Hashtag United then you're in the fourth tier currently top of division for the FA Women's National League Division 1 Southeast, which I always think is a mouthful the way that these leagues are divided up. But essentially, you're based in Essex. The season's going well. And I take it you're hopeful for promotion as well. We are hopeful, yes. Um, it looks like it's a run-in with us, Norwich and AFC Wimbledon. Those right. two actually played each other yesterday and it was a one-all tie. So, decent result for us. Um but we've still got to play Wimbledon once more. We we drew them first game of the season. 
and we've still got to play Norwich twice. So there's still a lot to play for. I know it is all about team achievement, but this is obviously a personal award that you're going for, leading the way for the golden ball in the FA Cup. And if you win that, I believe that you get presented with the award at Wembley which happened for Chloe Williams last year. And I'm, I'm sure Chloe got 12 goals. So with 11 already, you'd think that you're you're out in front and going to be difficult to catch. Yeah, I mean, we've got a tough game. Obviously, the bigger teams are in it now. I don't think there's going to be much goals going in at this point. But yeah, hopefully I can get one or two against Coventry. But we'll just, we'll just have to see how it goes. On a serious side issue, let's talk about the FA Cup and the prize money because this is something that's reared its head a few, a few years in a row now. Just in terms of the parity and how much you can actually win and how much it costs you to send a team on these away legs in particular. So if you win round four, you get £15,000. In the men's competition, that would be 120000 And I think coming in a week as well, Sammy, where we've spoken about, you know, Wales have announced that they're having parity for, for the national team, men and women. Do you think more needs to be done here? Is this a conversation we've got to still keep beating the drum about? A hundred percent. I mean, even last year, it wasn't for this round, it wasn't 15K. So this year there was sort of like a an injection of money put into the game, which is which is amazing. Hopefully just as the years go on, more and more will be pushed into it, especially after what the women did uh, last year. So, um, yeah, like I said, it will just get bigger and bigger. And hopefully the investment will be, yeah, will be there. I just sort of wish I was a bit younger, to be honest, because I feel like <laughs> it's just going to get bigger and bigger now. And uh, yeah, I feel that I'm not going to be playing once it gets to that that peak and for those people who love the FA Cup rounds which which I do I think it's because we all love the underdog Sammy that's why I think it's a British (laughs) thing but when you travel to Coventry United so there this is for the fourth round what is that gulf like can you explain how big you think the gap is between the clubs I mean yeah the the gap's obviously there there I believe they just won their first game actually of the championship against Palace yesterday so they're going to be coming into it obviously buzzing but there's hope there. We're, we're definitely hopeful. That's It's probably the, the best draw for us, in honesty, because it gives us the chance to just sort of see where we're at as a team. But then, I mean, we might go out there and get spanked. Who knows? But <laughs> it just gives us the, the chance <laughs> to just go out there and just see where we're at. And yeah, yeah. hopefully we don't get too much of a beating. We can give them a good game. And if you don't and you manage to get through, there is a potential for a WSL team in the next round. Who would you love, Sammy, personally? Well, I said this, we actually did a live draw last time um, with Spencer and he asked us the exact same question, who do we want? And I'm a Man U fan. <laughs> so oh, I want right. to play, play Man U away. <laughs> and I looked at the draws and everything and I was like, Man U don't actually have a home game that weekend. So Old Trafford would be available. So <laughs> Man U away is, is definitely, a, yeah, that would be a big one for me. Such has been the direction of the game that it's been a while, Sammy, since I've been able to ask a footballer, what do you do on the side? What's your other job? Because we have a professional game now and it, and it's really filtering down in the championship too. We've got teams that are going fully pro. But for you, you do have to do the juggle. It's real. Uh, what do you do? Yeah, I'm actually on my lunch. I'm on my lunch hour. Um, <laughs> I, so I'm a digital content developer. Um, it sounds really fancy, but essentially I just build e-learning courses for a healthcare recruitment company. So yeah, part of our onboarding, we offer free training to all of our recruits. So I just help build those and make them as interactive as possible. And yeah, so they're not too boring for the candidates. And I yeah. bet your colleagues are proud of you, aren't they? 
They are, yeah. My manager literally loves the fact that I play football. Her little girl actually plays football. So I know she follows it quite closely as well. But um, yeah, everyone just thinks it's so cool. And on the Monday morning, they're like, how did you get on yesterday? They're always yeah, really interested to hear how I've got on. What's this company called? Uh, Acacium Group. Well, we're going to say thank you because they've let you have your lunch break to speak to us. I'm going to let you get back to work and enjoy whatever happens against Coventry United, Sammy. Enjoy the game. And we're rooting for you in that golden ball race as well. Good luck for the rest of the season. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was me earlier speaking to Sammy Rowland. Uh, what FA Cup games are people most looking forward to then this weekend? We've got other fourth tier sides left in it, including Leeds ladies who play Arsenal. Cardiff, they take on tier three Burnley. AFC Wimbledon, who Sammy mentioned in her interview, they host second tier Charlton. Charlotte, where where are your eyes drawn? Well, I covered uh, Manchester City against Ipswich Town two years ago when they got that far and last year against West Ham. So I'll be keeping a close eye on Ipswich against Lewis. Mm. Arsenal leads for me, Bass, because I remember when Leeds were an absolute powerhouse. We've got Lucy <laughs> Ward and people like that that came through the the Leeds teams of yesteryear, and I I just think they're going to have a heyday again at some point. So I'm I mean I'm keen to see where they are in that one against Arsenal. And um, how about you? I'm hoping, all being well and weather and everything, I'm hoping to get down to see Wolves versus West Ham. Oh, so that, you're going yeah, to go to the Mighty to, Wolves. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, know, I know a couple of people down there. So, yeah, hopefully if it's not too cold for the little one. and um, But, yeah, and all being well, I'm hoping to get down and actually watch one. So looking forward to that fixture. Oh, please. Wear your golden black bath. Yeah, well, because say. I think Wolves, from everything I'm hearing, got a really good setup doing things that, the right way, affiliated with the men's, lots of support. Claire Hakeman, the, the Wolves yes. legend, has just gone back into the academy operations, uh, which links the club even more. Uh, Laura Nichols is there on the academy side. So, yeah, doing a lot of good things. So, yeah, I thought I'd get myself down and I might not wear the golden black. I, I can't bring myself <laughs> to do that, Lindsay, sorry. <laughs> um, that is all we have time for on this week's Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Uh, Bass, thank you so much again for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. And Charlotte, thank you. What are you working on this week? This week is Infrastructure and Women's Football, a couple of Manchester United contract talks, end of the January transfer window, and also a World Cup project. So yeah, lots of exciting stuff. Sounds like it will keep you busy enough. Uh, we appreciate your time as ever. As always as well, producer Sophie for putting all of this together and you at home for listening. Uh, please keep in touch on socials at The Athletic FC and at Offside Rule Pod. Goodbye for now. The Athletic.